One of the things that I've been appreciating a lot this past week is not only the diversity among yogis, but also the diversity among the teachers. Just coming and listening to the talks you know, of my colleagues, particularly last night, it struck me how different we all are. <laughs> you know, and listening to Carol and Buddha Rakita and Guy and Bonnie and Andrea and Winnie and myself, we all give voice to the Dharma in such different ways, you know, with different qualities of energy. And the great lesson here, of course, is that this diversity in teaching, as in all other things, allows us to be who we are. We don't have to think that we need to express the Dharma in any one particular way. We each find our own expression of it. And it makes it rich. We get so many different nuances and so many different angles on it. And at the same time, as we can appreciate the differences of expression, we also begin to see more and more profoundly the commonality of the teachings. That even though the giving voice to the expression may be quite different, underlying it, the truth of the Dharma is the same for all of us. And as our practice deepens, we tune in more and more to the commonality of our experience underneath the differences. So tonight, as you've been prepped, is hindrances too. <laughs> How we can work with these difficult and seductive energies that arise not only in our meditation practice. It's not that these hindrances are limited to the meditation hall. It's the same forces at work that come up in our daily lives. So in one description of the Buddha's enlightenment, there's a, there's a beautiful description of the night of his enlightenment. He's sitting under the Bodhi tree in what is now called Bodhgaya, India. And it's said that he sat down with the firm resolve not to get up until he had achieved full realization. Imagine coming into the hall with that. <laughs> I'm not going to get up until I am fully enlightened. Well, fortunately, I guess, for the Buddha, it happened that very night. But it's said that in the course of that night, different forms of Mara, you know, Mara is considered the embodiment of ignorance or delusion, that different forms of Mara manifest in his mind. You know, it's said that there were terrifying visions of violence and aggression and seductive visions of all kinds of heavenly pleasures. Then there's one line in this description which describes for me the transformative power of this practice. It's like the pole star of the practice. In speaking of the Bodhisattva on the night of his enlightenment, sitting with all of these different forces, <coughs> and they are exactly the same forces that are arising in our own minds. And it said, <clears throat> and the mind of the great being was not moved. <laughs> 
And I just, that's such a powerful statement. And we can just imagine the Bodhisattva sitting under the tree and all these different forces of desire and aversion and sleepiness and doubt and whatever, whatever form our takes. He's sitting under the tree, it's all coming up, and the mind of the great being was not moved. So what a powerful expression of a free mind. And so this line can be the reference point for our own practice and our own investigation. In whatever posture we're in, in whatever activity we're engaged in, we can look to see what has the power, what forces in the mind (coughs) have the power to agitate the mind, to disturb the mind. We can look more and more clearly, and we do, how is the mind seduced? And the beauty of a long retreat is that there's an extended period of time in which to observe our minds. You know, we can see all these forces on many levels, both obvious and increasingly subtle. We can see how these forces are at work. You know, and as we all know, at different times we get overwhelmed by strong emotions. We can get lost in background moods. And often we don't even know the mood is there, you know, but it can be the filter through which we're looking at all our experience. We can get lost or carried away just by fleeting thoughts. And on the most subtle level, and this gets very interesting to look at as our minds settle, we can see how the mind is seduced into identifying with consciousness itself. Because even as we begin to see thoughts and emotions and all the uh, experiences that have been described in the morning instructions, even as we become mindful of them and see how they come and go and maybe have a little more room around them, it's very easy for the mind to settle back and become the observer. Well, that's who I am. So untangling that one the identification with consciousness itself becomes a powerful investigation. So the Buddha highlighted, as you know, a number of the particularly seductive states, you know, calling them the the hindrances, the five, five hindrances. And it's so important in our practice as a way of keeping our mind keeping our minds unmoved in the face of them, it's important that we learn to recognize them as they manifest and explore not only their nature. So we want to understand not only the particular nature of each of these hindrances, but it's also tremendously helpful to explore What gives them their alluring power? Why do we get so seduced in them again and again, seduced by them? 
when we know them to be hindrances and yet the mind is pulled into them. So there's something about each of them that's very alluring and we can learn what that is. As we experience these hindrances with greater and greater mindfulness, day after day, as we see them frequently arising, hopefully at a certain point, we begin to not take them so personally. We begin to see their impersonal, impermanent nature. And we begin to see that these hindrances, the experience of the hindrances, is exactly the place, it is exactly the experience which can teach us about ignorance and about awareness, about suffering, about freedom, right in the midst of the hindrances, when we learn how to be with them skillfully. So if we have this attitude of interest and investigation, it's actually possible to become happy to see the hindrances. Because at a certain point, we'd rather see them than not see them. We'd rather be aware of them than remain in ignorance of them. So now, not all the time, but often, when a hindrance arises in my mind, Oh, good. Now, now I can look at you. That's when we bring awareness, mindfulness, interest, investigation to them. The more we practice in this way, and it's, it's a little paradoxical, the more mindful we can be of the hindrances, and particularly when they're strong, when they're really raging in the mind, the more mindfulness we can bring to that experience, the more stable our awareness becomes. There's a Tibetan saying that says, the greater the defilement, the greater the awareness, the more stable the awareness, because it's challenging us. These hindrances are arising, we bring mindfulness to them, and the mind of the great being was not moved. We can practice that even if it's just for a few moments at a time. So Guy has already spoken about desire and sloth and torpor and restlessness. So tonight I'd like to discuss in some greater detail doubt and aversion which are the last two of the five hindrances. So there are a couple of steps in working with each of these hindrances, with each of the five. And the first step is clear recognition. We need to learn how to recognize the hindrances as they arise in the mind. To recognize the telltale signs of doubt, of aversion, and the others. And the reason this recognition is so important is because doubt, aversion, and all the others often come disguised as something good and skillful. 
They're very tricky. Mara is very ingenious. So it clothes the hindrances in something that looks wholesome. So if we are not alert to the machinations of Mara, then we get seduced by them, we get fooled by them. So doubt. Doubt can really refer to two quite different states, one wholesome and one not wholesome. So I just like to acknowledge the wholesome side of doubt. And this is the quality of investigation, of inquiry, of taking interest in what's happening and not subscribing to dogmatic belief. And so we could say, yes, that, that quality of doubt is really a quality of interest and investigation. So the Buddha encouraged that, that quality of mind not to believe dogmatically, not to believe anything you hear. Everything that's said is a suggestion for your own investigation. And it's good to hear it in that way. The unskillful side of doubt, just to give it a name, we might call it skeptical doubt. So this is the quality in the mind of indecision, of uncertainty. And it's the opposite of confidence. So it's like being in an unknown place and you come to a crossroads and you don't know which way to go. That's the quality. You think, should I go left? Should I go right? And the mind just goes back and forth, thinking about which way to go, not certain, confused, in perplexity. That indecision, that perplexity, is the mind state of doubt. The mind goes back and forth between alternatives and doesn't go anywhere. Uh, There's there's some folk story, which I just came across. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with it. It's of a not-too-bright donkey standing equidistant between two big bales of hay. And because they're the same distance apart, the poor old donkey can't make up his mind which one to go to and ends up starving to death. (laughs) Well, we probably don't take doubt to that extent, (laughs) but when we watch how it works in our minds, we can see how it brings us to a standstill when we're lost, when we're, when we're caught up by this factor. Skeptical doubt, this kind of indecision or perplexity, is the most dangerous of all the hindrances. Because with the others... We're somewhat in the vicinity of the present moment experience. It may be that we're relating to it in not a skillful way. We may be wanting it or averse to it or agitated around it or kind of sinking into it. But with doubt, we've removed ourselves from what's actually happening in the moment. And it brings our practice and it can bring our life to a standstill. 
when this kind of doubt is strong, it doesn't even give us the opportunity to make a mistake, to go forward in one direction or another and, okay, maybe it's the wrong, the wrong turn, but at least then we can learn from it. Doubt keeps us frozen in place, trying to decide. There was a wonderful book and later a movie called The Life of Pi. Maybe some of you either saw the movie or read the book. There is a wonderful line in the book describing the danger of doubt. It's by the author Jan Martel. He wrote, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) That's what doubt does. It just stops us. Well, all of us, I think, have a fair degree of confidence in the Buddha's teachings, which is why we're all here. Still, doubt can arise in our practice in some very particular ways. As we pay attention and as we learn to recognize it, we can begin to become familiar with the particular patterns of doubt that arise within each of us. So for all of us, at different times, the practice is difficult. Part of the path is just working through difficulties of all kinds, difficulties in the body, difficulties in our minds. So this is normal. This is, this is just part of the unfolding path. But these difficulties, if not understood, if we don't see them as part of the path, they lead to doubting thoughts. They can lead to doubting thoughts about the practice that we're doing. For example, thoughts like, what am I doing here? Have you had that one? (laughs) What does watching my breath, being aware of the sensations of the movement, the zombie walk, what does any of this have to do with the suffering in the world? What does it have to do with the suffering in ourselves? And so these questions, and then we start doubting the practice. Or we can start comparing practices, which is another kind of doubt. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting or visualizations. Maybe Zen practice is where it's really at. Sufi dancing definitely seems more engaging. (laughs) At one point in After many, many years of Vipassana practice, uh, I had some teachings in Tibetan Dzogchen practice. And there's a lot of similarity, but also some significant differences. And the first month of doing the Dzogchen and just getting the basic instructions, my mind was plagued with this indecision about the two practices. And the form it took in my mind 
was the question, well, which one is right? Because they were saying some, in some cases, the metaphysics are quite different, you know, and saying quite different things. And so my mind became a lawyer for each tradition. And I spent a month basically driving myself crazy with doubt until I realized I was asking the wrong question. It's not about which one is right and which one is wrong. It was about does this practice serve the path of freedom? Does this practice lead to non-clinging? That's the only question that's relevant. Right? It's not a philosophical matter. Does it free our minds? Does it help to free our minds or not? So when I saw that, then the doubts resolved and I could just practice. Or we can start comparing even within this very tradition. The doubting mind is relentless. It will come up in so many different ways. Should I do metta or vipassana? Should I feel the breath at the nose or the abdomen? Oh, let me try the nose. No, no, this is really better. (laughs) Should I practice a directed awareness? Should I practice choiceless awareness? Should I practice concentration? Should I practice openness? Should I be making a determined effort? Should I ease into things? (laughs) There's endless forms of doubt that come up. Now, the questions themselves, these questions themselves are fine. They're, they're legitimate questions to ask once, <laughs> or maybe twice, or maybe three times. It's when we get caught up in the endless deliberation, that's when we have to recognize that what's going on in the mind is doubt. We have to see it, we have to name it, we have to recognize, oh, this is the doubting mind. Even more ingrained than doubts about the practice is really the very deeply conditioned pattern of self-doubt doubt about our ability to do the practice. You know, so that can take the form of I'm doing it wrong. I can't do it. I don't understand how to do it. It's not the right time. Too many other things are happening in my life. When this self-doubt is strong, not only in our meditation practice, it also becomes a debilitating force in our lives. We're always undercutting ourselves. We're always undermining ourselves, always holding back. I can't do it. It's not for me, whatever. There's a very interesting phrase in English which captures the intensity of the doubting mind. We use the phrase... Someone is plagued by doubt. And doubt is a plague. It's a plague of the mind. It's like a plague that weakens the mind. 
instead of making the experiment, whatever it may be, the experiment in this practice, the experiment in what we want to do in the world, instead of just going ahead and making the experiment, engaging fully in the experience, and then seeing for ourselves, was this a value or not a value? We can assess it based on our own experience, not based on this speculative mind going back and forth, lost in doubt, not going anywhere. One of the great victories of doubt, when it's not seen, is that it is self-fulfilling. Because staying lost in the doubting mind really is useless. It doesn't lead any place. It doesn't allow us the opportunity to investigate for ourselves, to see for ourselves, is this a value, is it not a value? The doubting mind, and as you pay more and more explicit attention to it, and really recognize it when it arises, we experience the doubting mind. It's it's called the thorny mind because it is like a thorn that keeps jabbing. You know, it has that effect. And so we feel irritable and we feel discouraged. And this this is the debilitating power of this mind state. It's not to be treated lightly because it has a lot of power, again, not only in meditation, but in our lives as well. Sometimes self-doubt comes or arises out of a feeling of unworthiness. You know, and this can be a deeply conditioned feeling within us coming from a lot of different causes where we just feel unworthy and then that unworthiness leads to all kinds of self-doubt. Years ago, this was back in the 1970s, His Holiness the Dalai Lama visited IMS. This was before he had won the Nobel Peace Prize, and so he was a little less famous. And so it was a great blessing that he came. And somebody asked him, this was the question, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this? as a beginning meditation student? This was a very poignant question. I don't feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this? And the Dalai Lama's answer was, to me, quite surprising. He was very strong in his response. You know, usually he's kind of smiling and laughing and engaging, but he kind of took on this just very strong energy, and he said, You should not be discouraged. Your feeling, I am of no value, is wrong. Absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So that was... So this is very very interesting to unpack a little bit. Why did he say that? Because he knew intimately that every being in in 
in the language of Tibetan Buddhism, every being has Buddha nature. You know, the potential for awakening, for enlightenment, is in all of us. And when we are believing that we are unworthy, we are deceiving ourselves. We're covering over that much more fundamental truth about who we are. The potential for awakening, the potential for enlightenment is right here. But in hearing this, we need to take a little bit of care. Because it would be easy to see how the mind could hear the Dalai Lama's response. You are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself when you feel this way. It would be easy to see the mind then just getting caught more in more self-judgment. Uh-oh, <laughs> I shouldn't be feeling this. So Sokni Rinpoche, who's a contemporary Tibetan teacher, wonderful teacher, very engaging. He made a very useful distinction in how we understand our emotions. And I'll just, not going to go into it in a lot of detail, but just to plant the seed and maybe you'll explore it a bit in your practice. And it's very relevant to this feeling of unworthiness. Sokni Rinpoche said that many feelings are real, but not true. And I really love that because it acknowledged, yes, the feeling is real, we're having it. So it's not that we deny it or you know, try to cover it up or pretend that it's not there. It's real. You know, we're having the experience, but it's not true. And so that gives the space for us to assess okay, this feeling is coming up because of different conditioning, but is it ultimately true? And that's what the Dalai Lama was pointing to. So it's just to see this also as another condition for self-doubt to arise. The Buddha was very explicit about the importance and value of recognizing and working with the hindrances. So this is what he said, this is from the suttas. When we attend to the hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation, and lead away from Nibbana, from enlightenment. That's, that's a pretty unambiguous statement about the power the hindrances have. Again, it's not only a meditation. They, they are at work in our lives. They lead to vexation, away from wisdom. So the question is, given all this, it makes one wonder why would we ever be caught up in these unskillful states? If they so clearly are unwholesome. I love this list. Cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation, leading away from awakening. Why in the world do we ever get caught up in them? So that's the interesting question. To really look at what is their alluring power? 
how do they seduce us? We can begin to see if we're bringing our mindfulness to bear in all the different ways doubt may arise in our minds. And it takes, it takes a conscious intention to do that. It's like sitting down with the intention, okay, I'm going to keep an eye out for this. But you have to be very, uh, really alert because it will fool you. What happens is that doubt arises in the mind masquerading as wisdom. So that's how we get pulled into it. We hear these wise-sounding voices in our minds. It sounds so reasonable. What's the point of doing this? Yeah, what is the point of doing this? Maybe some other time. Yeah, I think some other time would be better. Other practices really are quicker. Aren't we already enlightened? And on and on. I'm just not able to do this. Maybe some other time. And the voice in the mind is so seductive. And it sounds so wise. And it sounds so reasonable. That we just get caught up in that doubting story. So what's very helpful and will be a great uh, strength for you is if you learn to recognize the very particular form doubt takes in your own mind, because it's different for each one of us. You know, we each have our own particular voice of doubt. And it would be good if you could get so explicitly aware of it that you could write down some of these sentences you know, so that you know your mind that well. Because when you can recognize those beginning sentences, ah, there's doubt, Mara, I see you. That's when we begin to have the power to disengage because we see it for what it is. We see it then as just another passing thought. You know, these, these thoughts come, doubting tape, doubting tape. And we don't give them any power. And then in the very midst of the doubting mind, of these doubting thoughts, there can be a sudden awakening to the empty, transparent, impersonal nature of doubt itself. The mind really awakens right in the midst of the hindrances. And that's why it's such a fruitful place to practice. In recognizing doubt as doubt, we are already aware. So this is something really to practice. There was a 11th century Korean Zen master. His name was Shinul. And he framed his teachings in a wonderful way. I very much appreciate his frame on Dharma practice. 
He called his teachings sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And so he starts with awakening. And he starts like waking up in the middle of a hindrance, coming to awareness right in the midst of it, but also recognizing that one moment of waking up is not enlightenment. And so it needs gradual cultivation. This is what he says about the power of these moments of awakening. And sometimes, as I say, this awakening can happen in the midst of the hindrance itself. So he said, although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and empty, and the mind's nature is originally pure. So it really shows us the power of bringing mindfulness to the hindrance itself. There's tremendous potential for understanding. Okay. Did you get doubt? (laughs) Watch out for it. It's very tricky. You really have to be alert. We'll be fooled many times, so that's going to happen, but just remember that it comes masquerading as wisdom. Okay, so the other mind state that powerfully conditions our lives, which we all experience many, many times, is the mind state of aversion. And we experience this in many ways. We experience it as anger, we experience it as hatred, as annoyance, as irritation, as fear, as ill will, as grief, the judging mind, all of these mind states are conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. It's very rare that we get angry at what's pleasant. You know, it's aversion arises mostly as a conditioned reaction to something unpleasant. So as with Tao, we can learn to recognize aversion when it arises, investigate its nature, and then to really see the source of anger's hold or aversion's hold on the mind. Why do we get caught in it? What is the alluring power of aversion? So it arises in some pretty predictable ways, ones we're really familiar with. Aversion very easily arises in response to physical pain. It's a rare yogi who will say when pain arises, oh good, a chance to investigate pain. Our first reaction is usually not that. You know, and we can see maybe contraction or irritation or just not liking. We don't like physical pain. So we feel frustration, we feel impatience. So reversing that or looking at it from another side, when we're feeling that sense of contraction, you know, that sense of pulling back, that can be a sense of struggle in our practice that is often the signal that aversion is present. 
And so we can take the struggle, we can take the, the contraction as feedback. It's, it's a, if we're struggling, it means only one thing. Struggle means that something is going on that we're not open to. Because if we were open to it, we wouldn't be struggling. And one of the things we most close off to is physical pain. So this is, this is a very easy and predictable area to investigate the aversion in our minds. Uh, Saida Utejaniya, who Carol was mentioning last night, he had some <laughs> uh, had some great words about this. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't even want the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dharma? And I love that line. You don't even want the tiniest bit of unpleasantness. It's so resonated. You know, we don't. And yet, of course, it comes. So we have to learn how to be open. Aversion arises, and I'm sure you've had many examples of this already in the short time that you've been here, even though it might feel like it's been a long time already. (laughs) Aversion can arise when we think about unpleasant past experiences. Painful or unpleasant situations in the past or situations of conflict in the past. There's the thought or image of someone or some event, and we get angry or annoyed or fearful just thinking about it. And I've had this happen many times. You know, when I'd be on retreat and then something would come up in my mind of some difficulty or other, and it's amazing. The power of a thought to trigger an intense emotion. You know, just just one thought, one image, and the anger is there and the aversion is there. But in that moment, what are we really getting angry at? We're getting angry at a thought. It's not that we're in the situation. We're just sitting quite here in the hall or in your room. We're just sitting here. Nobody's bothering us except our own minds. And the thought comes, triggers this strong anger or annoyance, whatever it may be. And we forget that it's just a thought in the moment. Munindraji, my first teacher, had, had a wonderful line, which has stayed with me you know, all the years, 40 years. It still comes up in my practice. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. <laughs> well, you could say the thought of anything is not the thing itself. It's a thought. So we want to see it for what it is before it triggers Right? The reaction of aversion or anger. Or... Even more remarkable is we can get angry thinking about something that hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> we imagine something might happen. It's so easy for the mind to get caught up in it. It's so remarkable. We're just sitting here and these thoughts come of some future possibility that we, that we don't like, that we don't want. 
and the mind can get filled with anger or fear or some form of aversion or other. So there's something important to say here because there's, a, uh, there's an important understanding. And that is that powerful emotions, whatever their cause, whether it's just a thought arising in the mind, whatever the cause, very often, or at least at times, powerful emotions are conveying some important information. So it's not to say that we shouldn't be paying attention to what the emotion, what the anger, what the fear, whatever it may be, what that's trying to tell us. Because it might very well be about a situation that needs addressing. You know, we might feel anger at injustice or be in a situation where it's very necessary to set boundaries, to set appropriate boundaries. And at first, this information might come in the form of feeling anger at what's happening. So we want to take the information that's conveyed in it. But can we understand the message without being overwhelmed by the anger, without being overwhelmed by the fear, and then taking appropriate action in a skillful way. So all of this has to be part of our understanding of how to work with the various forms of aversion that might arise in our mind. We can get impatient or frustrated or annoyed about situations on retreat. Now, when we're feeling grumpy or discouraged or we're going through a difficult time, the smallest, the smallest thing can provoke anger or annoyance and then irritation. And then we project that onto others. I think Guy or someone mentioned briefly, didn't go into it, the phenomena of the Vipassana romance. You know, where there's somebody on the retreat that you're just attracted to and then the mind spins out in all kinds of desires. Well, there's also a phenomenon called the Vipassana vendetta. <laughs> there's somebody here, and you may have never met them before. You don't like anything about them. You don't like the way they dress. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they eat. Whatever. <laughs> and it's just the mind. <laughs> this is what we call yogi mind. You know, it's just the mind getting triggered by some kind of dissatisfaction in ourselves and then projecting it out. So we want to watch. This is another way aversion takes hold of our minds. Aversion arises, arises, could go on for hours about the different ways aversion arises. It arises when we personalize impersonal situations. You're caught in a traffic jam, road rage. <laughs> I mean, the mind can get triggered by something that obviously is outside of one's control. You know, it's totally impersonal. And yet, if we don't have the ability, yes, it can be frustrating. You know, if 
caught in traffic and you didn't have an appointment, it can be frustrating. But if we don't have the ability to simply allow the frustration to be there, then it gets magnified and projected out into this rage or anger. Or you go to the airport, you know, and you go there two hours early and then you find your flight is canceled. What, do we get angry at that? Do we get irritated? Do we get annoyed? Most likely. But it's not directed at us. <laughs> it's an impersonal situation which we are personalizing. So that's another place to look for aversion. Sometimes unnoticed emotions might be feeding anger like an underground spring. So quite a few years ago, I was teaching a series of retreats uh, to people in the legal profession. So they were law students and lawyers, and there were even a couple of judges in there. And in one of these retreats, this one guy, I think he was a second or third year law student, he said something so interesting to me. You know, and it's a very uh, adversarial, often adversarial profession. And he said, I have to feel anger in order not to feel fear. And I thought it was so interesting. You know, just because he hadn't learned how to simply let fear be there and act in spite of it or act with it. So he felt the need to have anger be there as a way of not feeling fear. So it might be helpful at different times when the mind is filled with anger or aversion. Is there something underneath that we're not opening to? There may be frustration when we don't get what we want especially if somebody else does. (laughs) So there's a writer by the name of uh, Annie Lamont. (laughs) I love this. She described how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. So this this is what she wrote. It can cause just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend, she says, for, say, her head to blow up. (laughs) So sometimes envy becomes the cause of aversion. So, again, given all the manifest ways you know, aversion arises both in our meditation practice and in our lives in the world. And the thing about aversion and all its forms of hatred, anger, irritation, annoyance, unlike kind of sense desire, with this particular hindrance, the hindrance itself is unpleasant. You know, when we're we're feeling angry or we're feeling irritated, It's not a pleasant, we're the ones who are suffering. So the question is, what's the great seduction of it? Why do we buy into it? Why do we get seduced into it again and again? Often, the seduction of anger is the very sweet feeling 
of being right. You know, a kind of self-righteousness. We're in a situation, I should feel angry because this, you know, this person did this, this, and this. So the Buddha described it this way. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. You know, when we look at the source of it, it's rooted in hatred. You know, in terms of the root defilements of greed, hatred, delusion, aversion is rooted in something you know, that's, that's unwholesome. And yet it has a honeyed tip because often we justify it to ourselves. And again, I want to reiterate I mentioned a little earlier, sometimes important information is coming to us through the anger, and we don't want to ignore that. But can we use that information and respond to whatever the situation is skillfully rather than unskillfully? So that's the great gift of mindfulness. So how do we work with aversion? It's just like with all the other hindrances. We need to recognize it. We need to open to it. We need to recognize what its allure is, how we often justify it to ourselves, and therefore not see that we're getting caught, that we're getting identified. We can use the presence of aversion if we're mindful of it, to tune in to the unpleasantness of the situation that the anger is a response to. So I'll just give you an example. Years ago, many, many years ago, I was practicing in India, and in the summer months, very hot there on the plains, it goes up to like 120 degrees. And so often, myself and a few friends would go up to the mountains and just rent some cottage or so one summer we went up to Kashmir, and it's an interminably long bus ride from the, the last of the railway station up into the mountains, like a 17-hour bus ride on an Indian bus. And so I'm getting on this bus, and the last seat was just over the crank case. So I'm, I'm sitting there, squeezed in between two other people, and my thought was, oh, this is going to really be bad. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I'm going to just stay on my breath. I'm going to just stay on my breath for this whole trip. (laughs) I'm going to just keep all of this unpleasantness out. So I had been practicing for some time, and so it was okay for an hour, maybe, maybe even an hour and a half, two hours. But at a certain point, I realized this isn't going to work. I was just getting more and more tense, trying to stay on the breath. But then I had a little, a mini satori. I realized this is definitely the wrong path. And instead of trying to keep things out, how about if I let things in? And that was a real moment. Letting the unpleasant in, rather than trying to keep it out. And as soon as I did that, I just opened it. And it was unpleasant. It was unpleasant smells and the heat and the 
bumpiness of the ride, it was unpleasant. But my mind became completely easeful with it, as if I just created the space and just all this unpleasantness was happening within it. But my mind was no longer reactive. I wasn't any longer averse to it. And the whole rest of the ride became much more manageable. So maybe just as a little mantra to remember, you know, in your practice when things are getting difficult and you have that sense, oh, I, I just don't want to be with this. Kind of the little mantra could be, let things in rather than keep them out and see if it makes a difference in how you feel, see if it actually brings you to a place of greater peace. Okay, I'm giving a version, a little short shrift, because uh, I got so engaged with doubt. But there'll be many opportunities to further explore aversion. One of the key understandings of all of these hindrances, all of the difficult energies, is understanding that they are not intrinsic to our minds. They are coming as visitors to the mind when certain conditions are there. And the conditions change and they leave. When we're not mindful, all of these afflictive emotions, the hindrances, they obscure the natural wisdom of the mind. So they're important to understand, they're important to recognize and to learn, to to just see into them. But when we are mindful of them, when we really bring them into the practice, instead of pushing them out, when they're arising and we can open to them and see their nature, yes, anger is like this, aversion is like this, doubt is like this, we're really investigating their nature and seeing their impersonal, impermanent, empty nature, then the hindrances themselves become a vital part of our path. We're transforming the hindrances into wisdom. I'd just like to close with one teaching. Uh, it's a teaching from Ajahn Mun, who was kind of the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. He was this great monk who lived in the Thai forest, and many of his disciples became uh, the famous teachers in that tradition. Um, and he was reputed to be an arhant. And, there's a wonderful biography of him, the biography of Ajahn Mun by one of his disciples, and it's, it's an amazing book because <laughs> he had all kinds of powers of mind and could see all kinds of different realms, and the book describes just his life. Uh, so anyway, this is, this is what he said. Of the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dhamma. Understanding the mind 
is the same as understanding the Dhamma. Once the Dhamma is known, once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.